Many discussions of inclusive teaching practices ignore the role of neurodiversity in higher ed. In this episode, we discuss strategies that faculty and institutions can use to create a welcoming environment for neurodivergent students and faculty. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Liz Norell. Liz is a political scientist and the Associate Director of Instructional Support at the University of Mississippi's Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Welcome back, Liz. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Today's teas are, Liz, are you drinking tea? I am not. I am drinking some vitamin water, tropical mango flavor. So there's some stuff mixed with water. That's tea, right? Yes, sure. (laughs) And I am drinking Prince of Wales tea today. Oh, I like that one, John. I haven't had that in a while. And I have a wake today. It's Monday when we're recording. (laughs) That feels fair. But it's getting really boring. I know. (laughs) We've invited you here today to discuss issues related to neurodiversity in higher education. Before we start, though, could you define neurodiversity and how is this different from neurodivergence? Sure. So I think these two terms get kind of conflated with one another a lot. And so I try to be really explicit in talking about neurodiversity versus neurodivergence. And there are a lot of different perspectives on these two terms and some of the baggage that they carry with them. But when I think about neurodiversity, I just think about a diversity of brains. And so any group that has more than one person is going to be neurodiverse. We all have different brains. But neurodivergence is a brain that works differently than how we typically think of brains working. And there are lots of diagnoses that get put under the umbrella of neurodivergent. Some of the most common ones are autism, ADHD, there's Tourette's, there's lots of other ones, dyslexia, dyspraxia, OCD sometimes gets lumped in there, bipolar disorder will get lumped in there. So neurodivergence is just a brain that works differently than the way we typically think of brains working. We're thinking about college student populations, and I know that this is partially a guess because we don't actually know, but how many do we think are neurodivergent? The estimates that I've seen have been around like one in six maybe, but I think that it's probably closer to 30 or 35%, honestly. I think a third is probably a reasonably good guesstimate. It's a large number. And I will say that a lot of those students either may not know that they have some sort of neurodivergence, or they may not ever tell us that they have neurodivergence. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, I think. What proportion of neurodivergent students have accommodations through campus disability services? Who knows? If we don't know the denominator, it's hard to know what proportion of people would be registering with accommodations. But I think there are certainly a lot more students who are registering with disability services with an official diagnosis, but there are some barriers to that. And the first one is that it's really expensive and time-consuming to get a diagnosis. 
So I should say, and I should start pretty early in our conversation by saying that I recently went through the diagnosis process to get a diagnosis of autism at age 45. And it took me a year from reaching out until I had the diagnosis. And I was able to navigate that because I have some experience interacting with medical teams. I had good insurance, but it still took me a year to get an appointment and to get the diagnosis. And so there are a lot of students who may not have the tools or the time or the resources to go through that, even if they suspect it. And I went 44 years of my life without even suspecting that I might be neurodivergent. I think there are a lot of barriers to that. And then once you have the diagnosis, it can be very intimidating to disclose that. To go through the campus accommodation process takes so much time and advocacy. And that comes from a population that's already taxed in terms of their bandwidth and their resources and their just ability to get these things done. So I don't think that thinking about the numbers of people who seek accommodations is even close to representing the population of students who might have these conditions. It would seem that there's a bit of an equity issue here in that students from wealthier households, students from continuing generation households are much more likely to have the resources to go through the process of having the need for accommodations being documented. That's right. And I think this gets into some of the language around neurodivergent versus the neurotypical. A lot of people who are neurodivergent, who have some sort of condition or way of thinking or way of operating, have been socialized to think that there's something wrong with them, this kind of medical model of disability, instead of the more like social model of this is a socially constructed difference. And so to seek out a diagnosis requires a kind of self-containment, I think, to recognize that this is not something wrong with me. A lot of people who have a neurodivergent brain probably feel like they should be able to act like a neurotypical person. So they don't want accommodations because they feel like that is somehow making them less than their neurotypical students. And it's this medical model that has infused so much of our talk about disability, and especially pernicious here where we know that there are Real struggles that students have when they have these neurodivergent brains that we are just not accommodating well in the classroom. I do want to mention at this juncture that we do have an episode 221, Disability in Higher Education with Kat McFarland, that really talks in detail about the accommodation process. And so that's a really great place to learn more about that process in high detail. That was kind of the subject of most of that episode. Most of our college faculty generally haven't been trained to address issues of neurodiversity. Can you talk about some of the common challenges our neurodivergent students face in classrooms? Yes, and it's absolutely the case that we have not been trained in this. And I think also many of my faculty colleagues, past and present, have this idea that an accommodation is somehow like special treatment that's making a class easier for students when we should, John, as you mentioned, be thinking about this as an equity issue. So accommodations are meant to provide equal opportunity for success. And if you're bringing some of these conditions into the classroom, you're already operating at a deficit. So what are those? Well, it can be things like being really easily overloaded by sensory information. So we see this a lot with autism and ADHD, where 
as someone who now understands herself to be autistic, I think about this phrase, the lights are too loud. Like it just feels very harsh. And when people are talking over each other, I get very flooded very quickly. This has been the case my whole life. If there are unfamiliar foods or drinks, that can be really overloading. And so background noise, people who are close to each other, uncomfortable seating. These are all things that can show up in our classrooms that can cause someone with a neurodivergent brain to go into kind of overload. And that, of course, reduces their ability to pay attention and to learn and to retain information. Unclear communication is a huge challenge for people with neurodivergent brains because it's often the case that there's some sort of like inability to recognize sarcasm or the ability to get some nonverbal communication. Oftentimes, people with neurodivergent brains will interpret everything very literally. And so they miss out on some of the nuance. Um, For me, it's been this like obsession with choosing the just right word because I need it to be precise. And I can get really fixated on that sometimes in a way that feels very pedantic. But that is really just me very much trying to communicate clearly. When there's unclear terminology, write professionally or be collegial or work well with others. Like, I don't know what any of that means. I have no idea. And there's an assumption that there's some shared social norms that may not be as visible to people with a neurodivergent brain. There's a lot of, of course, well-documented social aspects to neurodivergence. So just like not really knowing how to work with others in an effective way or feeling like that sense of I'm different, I'm broken, I'm not as good as that I mentioned earlier can carry over into social dynamics. And then the last one that I think is really important for us to think about in terms of higher ed is executive function. So executive function is that ability to kind of be a taskmaster of your own attention and brain. And so things like prioritizing work, time management, how to take notes, how to make decisions, how to cope with the ups and downs of life, due dates, all of those things like managing systems is really hard when you have a neurodivergent brain. And we often assume that our students have those skills. And so we don't scaffold them. We don't help them. We don't point them to resources. And that can be really hard. So those are just like four big clusters, sensory overload, communication, social interaction, and executive function. How can faculty anticipate or design with neurodivergence in mind, particularly when many students with disabilities choose not to self-identify? Just being aware of these things that I've just mentioned is hugely helpful. And I think the hard work is really just awareness. So for example, I've heard lots of my colleagues and myself at earlier points in my career lament about students who are distracted by their cell phones or their laptops, who seem to need to go to the bathroom three times during a 50-minute class, or who otherwise seem to be just kind of like disconnected from class. We see that as a sign of disrespect and as of not paying attention. But a neurodivergent brain often really struggles to sit still and make visual contact with another person or object. And so it's often the case that our neurodivergent students can learn better if they are doing something, the more physical, the better. So for some of my students, it's things like knitting in class or coloring or doodling. This is actually not them disengaging or not paying attention. 
It's them doing something that allows them to focus their attention on what you're saying. So I like to think about performance of attention, what we often think of as paying attention. So if a neurodivergent student is going to perform attention, they're probably not actually listening to anything you're saying because they're using all of their brain power to do the things that you think mean they're paying attention. With that said, this sort of notion that we have to reorient our thinking about what students are doing and what that means in terms of their engagement with us, I think being really clear about scaffolding what tasks are needed, providing clear deadlines. So Karen Costa, who is just brilliant, talks a lot about ADHD and she is a person with ADHD and she talks about the need for more structure not less that flexibility can be useful but you need a lot of structure and for people with neurodivergent brains it can be really helpful to have lots of small deadlines that are low stakes with some grace around them but like clear structure is really important messaging to students like here's how you do this class so if that's working in a group that's giving specific roles and asking the students to decide who's going to be the note taker and who's going to be the reporter and who's going to be the crazy idea person and who's going to be the let's bring it back to the text person so just kind of delineating some specific roles communicating clearly and in multiple modalities so especially if you're doing a lot of audio lecturing or giving of directions making sure that those are also available in writing so students can come back to them later when they know that you said something but they don't remember what. And then just being really aware of that sensory environment in which you're learning. So if that's in a physical classroom, thinking about ways to give students permission to make themselves comfortable. If that's getting up and walking around a little bit and just sort of saying like I know that that helps some of you concentrate, fine with me if you do that telling them that they can get up and leave the room for a couple of minutes if they need a break. If they want to bring in things to play with, color, fidget, create, whatever, that's fine too. A lot of my students like to sit on the floor. I mean, that sounds like a disaster for me and my middle-aged body, but when you're 18, it's like easy to get up off the floor. And so if you want to sit on the floor, sit on the floor. It's cool. If that helps you be more comfortable. So, I think it's awareness and then just messaging to students that they can do what they need to do and and i just want to say one more thing about this and that is even if you are not neurodivergent even if you are what people define as neurotypical you can talk about students you've had people you know friends family members colleagues you know people who are neurodivergent talk about some of the ways that they have given themselves permission to make their environments work for them so that you're messaging to students that you understand and that you support those kind of self-advocacy efforts. So, you don't have to do all of that on the first day of school, <laughs> first day of class. That's a lot, but I often include something on my syllabus that says, you may have accommodations or you may not, but if there's something that I can do to make this class easier for you to participate in meaningfully and be successful in according to your own goals, then I will do it as long as it's something within my power to do. So, you don't need formal accommodations to ask me to do something to help you. One of the things that I heard you mention and often come up a lot in inclusive pedagogy and other spaces is the idea of scaffolding. Here again we have this assumption that everybody knows exactly what that is all the time, 
But part of that is really about helping students understand their priorities, perhaps within a class, and also how to manage their time related to certain kinds of tasks. Can you talk a little bit about that component of scaffolding and, and what that might actually look like in practice? Yeah, it's hard for me to tease that out without thinking about lots of other things, too, because we as faculty are coming into the classroom with certain ideas about what should be important and what students should want to do in order to be successful, whatever that means. And I have really had to learn over my teaching career to check myself on that because my priorities are not the same as my students. I remember once I was grading a student's final exam they had done. It was very, very early in my teaching career. I'm embarrassed to even say what they had done for their final, but it was multiple choice and I was grading it by hand. And I told them they could just stick around. I would grade it real quick and then give them their final grade because I had done everything else before then. And I looked at the student who had come to class every day and had really meaningfully participated and said, your final grade is a C. And I was so apologetic, like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And this student was like, yes, I passed. And it was a real moment for me of just like saying, okay, you cannot put your own values and goals onto students because that was literally the student's dream was to get a C and not have to take the class again. I think when we're talking about students, it's really having that very frank conversation. Like some of you are here because you are being required to take this class and I know it wasn't your choice and I'm going to try to make it as the least awful it can be for you. And I'm going to ask you to try to invest at least enough time to give it a fair shot. But I don't expect that everybody has the same goals. And so let's take a moment and reflect on what success for you looks like. And then what do you need to do over the course of the next 15 weeks or whatever it might be in order to make that goal? And so we sort of assume that our students' goals are to get a good grade and to move on to whatever the next thing is. But maybe it's not. Maybe they're just taking the class for fun. Maybe they don't care about the grade. Maybe they're an adult learner who has a curiosity about something. After I graduated undergrad, I took an ethics class online. This was like 2001 or 2002, maybe. So it was very early days of online teaching and learning. And I took it through the community college just because I had never taken it. And I thought it might be interesting. It really wasn't interesting for me. So I just like stopped paying attention, but I did not consider that a failure. Like I got a little bit of information. I also took a macroeconomics class because I had never taken a macro class. I had taken micro and it was all online and I did all the work, but I didn't turn in any assignments because I just didn't care about these. I just wanted to learn it. So I think having these conversations can be really helpful in students figuring out what it is that they want to get out of a class. Going to that point you made about structure. This is something we're seeing an awful lot, certainly in the work on inclusive teaching and Vichy Sathy and Kelly Hogan's book, as well as the work of Marianne Winkelmas on transparency in learning and teaching. There seems to be a convergence that by providing students with structure and support, it can do a lot. It can benefit pretty much all students. In past discussions, when we spoke to those authors, much of the focus was on the benefits to first-gen students and to students who were historically minoritized. But it's kind of nice to know that the same inclusive teaching strategies also addresses issues of neurodivergence. I had an experience at my last job where I just kept asking my dean, give me a set of rules and I will follow them. 
And she would say, well, just use your best professional judgment. And I don't know what that means. I think people with certain kinds of neurodivergence just want you to tell them what to do and they will do it. Give me a set of very clear expectations and I will meet them. And this can work for everyone, just like clarity. And it doesn't have to be punitive. I'm very fond of Kate Denial's pedagogy of kindness and this notion that like it should be kind, which can be, as Sarah Rose Cavanaugh says, like a warm demander. I want you to have expectations of me. I want to know that you care about me, but just be really clear because clarity is kind. And yes, it helps with all of those things. So the first generation students, the historically minoritized, the neurodivergent, lots of different kinds of people are benefited by this. And even the third generation, middle class, neurotypical student also benefits from clarity. Imagine that, not spending all of our cognitive energy trying to figure out what people want. Exactly. (laughs) What are some of the challenges that neurodivergent faculty face in their careers? We've talked a lot about students, but we also know that faculty also exist. We do. And we're not all like cut from the same cookie cutter. I can tell you just from my own experiences that higher ed can be really hostile to those who are neurodivergent. I've had really great experiences and I've had some really challenging ones. I think that it's helpful when we're aware of these things for students because we tend to have the most power over their educational experience. But we also share power with our colleagues. And so knowing what some of these things are can help us understand the behaviors of our colleagues that we might have been inclined to read as subversive or unprofessional or lacking in collegiality. Those words get used a lot for a lot of different kinds of identities and traits. Neurodivergence is certainly one of them. So as a woman who's neurodivergent, that intersectionality means that I'm always on the lookout for that kind of language of like unprofessional and not collegial and you're being difficult in some way. Well, or maybe I just don't understand what it is that you're asking of me. I also think we need to be really careful when we think about this idea of fit. So especially in hiring, we are looking for someone who will fit. But fit often means like me. And it can be very exclusionary to people who have some sort of neurodivergence because they may not act the way that you do. But that's actually a strength. I think When you look at the different kinds of neurodivergent conditions, ADHD brains are so good at hyper-focus. They just don't always do a good job of like understanding time, right? There's a kind of time blindness, but they're so good at that. And autistic brains are so excited about the things that they're excited about. And that energy is so captivating. And so these are not weaknesses. These are strengths that can really help us appreciate things in our work that we wouldn't if we didn't have those around. So when thinking about working with colleagues, all of the things that I said before, sensory overwhelm, communication, social interactions, and kind of executive function, we should be thinking about those things with our colleagues as well. So when I design a workshop, for example, in our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, I'm thinking about, okay, how do I create a space where the chairs could be moved away from the rest of the group so that people can have a little bit of space and kind of get away from that? Can I dim the lights a little? 
can I ask, make sure everybody's using a microphone, but also let people know that if they want to put in their loop earplugs, as I do, you can do that to kind of limit some background noise. Can I make sure that everything I say is also written down somewhere so that people have something to refer to later? Can I talk about my own experiences in a way that normalizes other people doing the same? All of those things can be used to make the environment more inviting for our colleagues. The last thing I want to say is that it is so exhausting as a person with a disability of any kind to constantly having to be advocating for yourself. So the more that non-disabled people can lend their support and their voices to advocating for easier pathways to accessibility, the less you're taxing your disabled colleagues. So thinking about what can I do that if I did it would make it easier for a disabled colleague to come behind me and ask for the same. Near the end of the summer, you posted on the social media site, formerly known as Twitter, something about a podcast and puzzles set of workshops. Have you started that? And could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so I'm really excited about this. And a lot of people who are not at the University of Mississippi are also excited about it. And I'm just trying to get the people on campus excited about it. So the idea here is that, and this was specifically created as a neurodivergent friendly space. So faculty and staff can come to our center for an hour every other week. So this Wednesday will be our next one. And we play a pedagogy podcast. So we've played an episode of this podcast. And we do a puzzle or some other kind of individual or parallel play is what it's called. So I'm working on a puzzle. It's in the next room and I'm not done with it. And it's driving me crazy because I don't like unfinished puzzles. But I have committed to not working on it except when everybody else is here. But it's a Funko Pop puzzle of Ted Lasso. So it's really fun. And we've had two of these now. And it's a small but mighty group who are into this. but. The lights are low. It's indirect, diffuse lighting. There's lots of different kinds of seating. And one person comes and colors. A couple of people have come and done puzzles. But the idea is that it's just a way to get together in a social space without the social expectation of small talk. So you can just come and show up and listen to a podcast and leave. If you want to stay and talk, you can. You don't have to. I am hoping that this becomes a movement of podcasts and puzzles. And I'm going to stick with it as long as it takes for me to make it so here. But we have probably like five or six people who have come to one of them. And I hope many more who will as it continues to spread. It's kind of hard to describe in a website or an email. But I think once people come, they see the brilliance of this. I say with all possible modesty. (laughs) (laughs) Have people actually finished the puzzle during the course of one of these meetings? This Wednesday will be our third meeting. So I think the Funko Pop Ted Lasso crossover puzzle will finish this week. I hope it's going to drive me absolutely batty if it doesn't. And then we'll move on to another one. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is. And it's a good way to kind of model what I think so many of our neurodivergent students would really thrive at a kind of way of learning that's very different than what we're used to in higher ed. And that's probably why it's hard for people to imagine why we're doing this or what it looks like. But we have writing groups where people come into a room and do their own writing. And just that body doubling of having someone else there while I'm trying to do something is enormously helpful 
And so in this case, like I took two things that I love that I never make time for because I feel guilty about all the other things I should be doing. So puzzles and listening to podcasts about teaching. And I just put them together. And I hope that more people will see ways to create these spaces that are perhaps a bit unconventional to higher ed, but that can open our imagination to the ways that we can model learning in different ways than the more traditional models that we're used to seeing. I like the analogy with the writing group and that it's really holding people accountable to do a particular thing, which is to attend to teaching in a different way by listening to a podcast as opposed to a different kind of workshop or something and allowing them to do something with their hands. I also have this very large bucket of fidget toys that I take to every workshop and I say, just borrow a fidget and just play with it and see how that changes your experience of the workshop. And if you find it to be soothing, imagine what normalizing this in your classes might do for your students. So my colleague, who's just a couple of doors down, I have one of these little like pop balls that makes like these really satisfying noises. And the first time I brought this to a workshop, she said, is that the sound I've been hearing? I just play with it all the time. Do you have any other advice for faculty and campuses who wish to better address neurodiversity? There's this phrase in the autism world and the disability world, and I've been hearing it more and more, and it is nothing for us without us. And so I can tell you my perspective as someone who is neurodivergent, but there's so much expertise on your campus and you should talk to those people. So that might be in the disability support services area. It might be students in your class, but just like have these conversations and find out what can I do for my position, whatever it might be, that can make this place more welcoming to people who are neurodivergent. And I think when you're asking that question, just like with anything else that we might be doing, then people are going to assume good intent and they're also going to be much more forgiving if you make a stumble of some kind, whatever that might be, I don't know. And so just talk to people, ask them. I feel like this is the most obvious advice that we give as faculty developers, but it's ask your students, just ask them. They just want to be asked. And so if I was to give any advice, it would be that just ask your students, what could I do that would make this easier for you? I know one thing that we talk a lot about on our campus is that access is really the doorway to belonging. If you don't have access, you're not going to feel like you belong. Just to know that someone is thinking about what you might need is enough to make them feel like they're included and that you're listening when they tell you what they need would be helpful. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? I have so many writing projects that I'm just sort of getting started with. So I just recently finished a manuscript on my book, The Present Professor that I mentioned the last time we talked. And so that's going through the publishing process and will eventually go out in the world, I assume, knock on wood. So I'm filling my time while I wait for progress there on, it seems like about a dozen other writing projects, all of which are just kind of me thinking. I've been really interested lately in talking about the role of learning outcomes and what we decide rises to the importance of a learning outcome. And if I may say this one controversial thing that I just keep saying to everyone I know, I don't think you as a student should be able to fail a class for doing something or failing to do something that is not a learning outcome of the course. So if turning in something two days late means that I fail the assignment, 
then shouldn't that be a learning outcome? Timeliness? I don't know. It just feels to me like if we're going to assess learning, then we should be assessing learning and not all the other things that are performance of learning. So I've been thinking a lot about that and a whole bunch of other things. That's what's next. Something. Many things. We had a similar conversation with Kevin Gannon not too long ago, who talked about performative hard assery. That was a technical term, but in terms of rigor, who distinguished between cognitive rigor and logistical rigor. Well, thank you. It's great talking to you, and we look forward to more conversations in the future. And when your book gets closer to coming out, we'd be very happy to have you back on to talk about that, as well as any other topic that comes up in between now and then. Absolutely. I so appreciate the work you guys do, and I'm grateful and honored to be a part of it. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance by Ganesh.